0: see what doing both means
1: for energy nationwide at bp.com investing in America welcome to episode 547 I am still on vacation this is a replay of an episode that was originally aired in 2013 with uh, Karen Kilgariff we recorded it at the Portland comedy festival and um, called Bridgetown and uh, it was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun this is before Karen ever started doing uh, my favorite murder. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As I said uh, in the other episodes, we will be back with new episodes in August. Our sponsor this week, as always, is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. If you want to check it out, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast so they will continue to advertise with us. Um, then just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor they think is a good fit, They will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. You need to be over 18, and BetterHelp is licensed in all 50 states. And without any further ado, here is that best of episode with Karen Kilgariff.
0: Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head.
1: I'm so glad you guys are here. I, uh, I've i been kind of agonizing over what to talk about when I when I come out here because I was like, I don't want to just start the show. I feel like I want to, be- because normally I'm just uh, in your headphones and here, here I am in person and I feel like I want to, there's so many things that I want to say to you guys, um, but I don't even really know where... To begin, I woke up this morning and uh... I had that feeling like, remember when you would sleep through your alarm clock and you were late for school or you're late for work and all of a sudden you just feel like a jolt of electricity go through your body? And I was like,
0: "Oh my God, I'm doing a show! I'm doing a live show at two o'clock!"
1: And then I was like, "Nobody that is coming to see the show wants me to feel that way." But this, what's so fucked up about the human brain is, it is. It is like the worst friend that we could possibly, we could possibly have. Last night I did, uh, I did a, a stand-up show and, uh, some of the folks that are here, uh, we hung out for a, a little bit afterwards and, and we were gonna go do stuff and it's funny cause I think there were, there was like four or five of us and we're all so similar. I went, I went up and I changed out of my, uh, little costume that I did my stand-up in and I came down and we were gonna go see some stuff. And everybody suddenly just looked really tired, and we all looked at each other and went, We should just all pretty much go home, right? <laughs> and it was kind of sad and it was kind of awesome at the same time. And I got up to my bed, and that's all, I, that's where I wanted to be, was my bed. And I was sitting thinking, Why? And I started feeling lonely, and I was like, I want to be alone, and yet when I'm alone, then I begin to feel lonely. How fucking stupid am I? But the thing that I think that I love about wanting to retreat into my hotel room and the bed is I feel like I make fewer mistakes when I'm in bed. There, it, there's something about it that just feels so safe, and I think one of the reasons I've been, I've been having anxiety about doing this show live is I don't get to edit it I don't get to redo anything and I'm afraid that I'm that I'm gonna make mistakes and I and I know that you guys are thinking that that's silly but it helps take the power out of it by me just saying that um, up front Um, And by the way I have been uh, waging a war with my butthole since I've uh, (laughs) my first 24 hours here 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 is what I ate euros. Espresso, Fritos, and a Snickers bar. I think my butthole might think that it owes me money. Uh, there's something else that I want. Do you guys have any questions before I uh, kick into the to the next part of uh, of the show? Okay. How much do you usually have to do for Not that much. Sometimes I'll say something that that is funny among comics, but I worry about the listener who is maybe struggling with something and feeling alone and kind of outside the fringes of society. And I worry that it's going to really bum that person out and it's not funny enough of a thing to leave in there, so I'll edit that out. Or sometimes a guest... We'll talk about maybe a sibling or something, and and I just kind of get the feeling that maybe a couple of years from now they're they're going to wish that they hadn't said that about that person who didn't have a chance to defend themselves. I think parents are kind of fair game because I feel like when you have kids, you know, you decided to bring that kid in the world, but you didn't decide to be a a, a brother or a sister with that person. So sometimes I'll I'll edit that stuff out, but. Uh, a lot of times the episode just kind of goes up with, uh, with almost almost no editing. And sometimes I'll have to do it for time. Um, any other questions before I... Uh... Okay. What I thought would be kind of a fun way to, to kick the show off is um, if you guys could share some of your fears uh, with me. So if you wouldn't mind anybody that wants to share a fear, if you could just come around here. And, uh, and line up and uh, just share one of, one of your fears with us. Is that terrifying? Is that one of your... Um, well, I'll start off with a couple of my fears. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm afraid that I'm not going to see the light and the show is going to run over and I'm not going to get the things that I wish uh, I was going to get to and I will be filled with regret for the next 24 hours and I'll eat even more Cheetos and caramels and shit myself. Um, I am afraid that you guys have expectations about how this is going to go, and I'm not going to, uh, fulfill them, and I will have disappointed you. What the fuck is going on here? (laughs) Are we going to disco dance? Um. Somebody's waving to me in the back. Are we good? Okay. Um. Would anybody like to come up and share? Would it would it be more comfortable to you if you raise your hand and I came out in the audience and you shared it? Let's do that. Okay, got your hand raised. Just tell me what your name and what your fear is, and where you're from.
0: Hi, I'm Melinda. I'm from Portland. Uh, I worry about chirping and
1: falling and breaking my teeth. <laughs> Somebody shared yesterday, and I totally relate to that one. Um, oh, it was uh, it was Sal who has a fear every time she gets a drink at a drinking fountain, she looks around because she's convinced somebody's going to ram her head into it and she's going to lose her teeth. W- yeah, Which kind of makes me want to do it to her.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah from Portland, and I'm
1: afraid of eating like tuna fish because it reminds me of old people in death. <laughs> I kind of get that on a certain level. I kind of get that. Do you ask uh, a server if the fish is fresh before you eat it? How about you?
0: Um, I'm Katie from Seattle, and I'm going to try and start a family this summer, but I'm afraid that I'm
1: going to spend so much money because we're using um, artificial insemination that I'm going to use so much money trying over and over and over again, and I won't be able to, and then I won't have any money left to adopt because that's like thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. That's why I recommend just abducting.
0: (laughs) Hi, I'm Andrea. I live in
1: Portland. Um, I have a horrible fear of cotton balls. I I can't touch them. I can't look at them. It's it's actually a known fear. I googled it. Other people have it. Really? Whose testicles were touched? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, by the way, for some of of these folks uh, right here came. We did a uh, a listener group recording at Lewis and Clark College and uh, I want to thank those people that are... Shell over there in the back and uh, Sal, and Andrea and Nicole and I think I think there's a couple more of you here but it was uh, it was such a beautiful experience um, because they brought surveys and they talked about what those surveys triggered in them and it was so nice because so often I instigate it by reading the survey and thinking what's interesting to me but it was really cool getting to see what was interesting to you guys and what what it uh, brought up in in your life so um, I just wanna acknowledge you um,
0: Hi, I'm Kennedy. I'm from Portland. Um, I have a fear that if I die in a car accident, I won't be wearing clean
1: underwear. (laughs) And that people will judge me for that. That's probably true. (laughs) That's probably true. i got to say, if I'm an an ER guy and I cut somebody's uh, shit open and there's just a a whole lot of ugliness right there, I'm going to crack a joke with my... (laughs) Blake from Seattle, uh, I fear I'm always like one day away from that giant cold sore popping up on my face. And, oh, the shame that comes with that is just something else. Do you get cold sores a lot? It's like every couple of months, but I always get it like it's one day away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, who else? Anybody else have a have your hope? Uh, My name is Troy. I'm from Portland. I'm afraid of birds, including real ones and animatronic ones. So specifically, the Tiki Tiki Room at Disneyland just terrifies me. I fucking love that. I just love that. I love how irrational our fear—and not, not that, yeah, that's irrational. It's, I'm not going to beat around the bush. That's, that's fucking weird. But I totally get that. The Joker on Batman used to scare the fuck out of me. I don't. Would anybody else, was anybody else terrified by Caesar Romero? I'm from Seattle and I moved back in with my parents and I'm afraid that um, I'm gonna without Great Gardens my mom eventually What's happening the Boviers, right wasn't that what Great Gardens was okay thank you uh, I'm James from Portland and uh, the only thing that freaks me out is antique children's furniture <laughs> is it because it's so tiny it's that, and I when I look at, like, a, a children's antique rocker, it just seems like it might start moving at any second. Thank you for that. I'm Roy. I'm from Portland. Uh, I think I'm afraid of infinity. Like, the vastness of space and being dead both terrify me. I think forever terrifies me. You're too smart for this show. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for that. And I think... Uh, give yourselves a round of applause. Your, your support... I know I say this a lot, but I want to say it because you're here in person, but your support of the show, you know, people will stop me and thank me and say, you know, the show means a lot to me. Thank you for doing it. I truly get as much out of doing it and getting the feedback from you guys um, as, as, as you do. So um, thank you so much. And with that, I, I want to bring out our, uh, our guest. Uh, you know her from uh, Mr. Show, and uh, she was the head writer for uh, The Ellen Show. And she's got an album out now called uh, Behind You, which is hilarious. And unfortunately, her guitar didn't make it tonight. She was going to sing a song for us. But um, I don't think her guitar is going to arrive in time. But please welcome Karen Kilgariff.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I say one thing super quick? Sure. Are we doing off the stand? Um, the guy that is afraid of cold sores, I've gotten them since I was 12. Don't eat nuts or chocolate and get a prescription of Valtrex and your life will be changed forever. Thank you for You're that. welcome. I, cold sores are the fucking worst thing of all time.
1: Because they also come with, it. not only do they hurt, but there's the, the shame.
0: There's some, oh my God, You. I was once told in a carpool, when I was like 12 years old, this girl goes, what's that thing on your lip? And I was like, mm-hmm. and she was like, it makes your face look dirty. is just like, thank you. Perfect.
1: And that's when you should have said, I should stop blowing your dad.
0: Great. <laughs> <laughs> and right
1: now, someone in the audience is triggered.
0: Sorry. Oh, dad blowing? It all—it's all, all going to come up today. Yeah, it's all coming up. <laughs>
1: uh, so, I, one of the things I asked Karen to do before she came here was um, to pick out some surveys that um, brought something up in her, or she found interesting, or triggered something that maybe she wanted to to talk about. So, um, you want to find one of those on your on your I phone? I, I shouldn't think.
0: have brought that coffee, but that's all right. I hold cups of coffee like bottles, like I'm a baby, and I just always yeah. have to have it in my
1: hand. Um, There is something very soothing about uh, having something to do with your hands when you're in a situation that you feel like, I don't know, you might be judged or people are looking at you. Yeah, like 200 people
0: are looking at you and you're talking to a
1: microphone. You're being very generous by saying 200 people.
0: It feels like the
1: energy is 200 easily, if not 220. It's funny, I I was afraid... I was afraid that it was going to sell out, and then I was afraid that it wasn't going to sell out. <laughs> that, in a nutshell, is my brain.
0: It's other people's disappointment, it's your disappointment, yeah. it's then the, the whole festival's mad at you, either yeah. way.
1: Somebody's going to be disappointed or I'm going to be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. that's but, life. Either way, fuck my mom.
0: Right. <laughs> it's so nice to have that base to come back to
1: every time, isn't it? What do, you, what do you got? Which which survey is this from? Uh, of
0: course, I went straight to body issues because hello. Um,
1: so this is from the body shame uh, survey.
0: This is the body shame, and they were all, I related to every single one of them. It's like a bunch of people going, I hate this, 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 and just like listing every possible. It's like Grey's Anatomy. Huh. I, I, my fibula is too long, or whatever. Everything, every single thing, which I relate to that. But this one person just put it together so perfectly, which is. I hate every single piece of my body. It is bad. I hate it. I'm told all the time by the voices, I'm ugly and deserve nothing. Hello, friend. <laughs> Hello,
1: best friend. When when did your um, hatred of your body start?
0: When that girl told me the thing about the cold sore. No. Um, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't be joking about this. Um, <clears throat> no, but there, there is
1: nothing that is, that is off limits. <laughs> Seriously, I don't ever want a guest or an audience member to feel like, you know, they they're, they're, there's something that we can't joke joke about. Um,
0: well, because, so. yeah, because it's not precious. I think, pre- yeah. like, regarding it as precious is actually causing, causes problems.
1: I, I completely you, agree. When you hold your
0: problems, like, get away, we can't talk about it. It's like, no, put it down and realize that everybody, a lot of people, have have similar issues. And mine, I think, started... My cousin, who was a heroin addict, um, once told me when I was walking ahead of her, and I think I was like 12, I'd, I didn't even think about my body until adolescence hit. And then it was almost like overnight, like my butt exploded backwards out of my body, and suddenly I just had a booty. And, but you know, then, I, but I was also 12. And my heroin addict cousin was walking behind me one day, and she said, you got a black girl's butt. And I, we, there were no black people in my town. I had no idea what that even meant. And I was just kind of like, oh, okay. And that, it became this thing where I, then I started going like, oh yeah, my butt is different than other girls in my class. It's bigger, you know, pants are tighter. And that, That kind of started that, like, oh, I'm different. Everybody else is doing fine with their bodies here in seventh grade. Of course, of Mm -hmm. course I thought that. Everyone else is having a great time in seventh grade. (laughs) And me all by myself with my cold sores and suffering. Me and my butt and my cold sores are the worst. And then it just, and then it kind of like was, I kind of got over that hump. Also, that was the year that they started the president's fitness test. So in my grammar school, you had to go out with boys and girls onto the playground and get tested for your fucking Ronald Reagan for your physical fitness. And, uh, I was the first one for the first event or whatever it is. And it was the, uh, it was the arm hang. And it was like the 15 second arm hang. And I literally got up and lasted like three seconds and dropped and my whole class booed me. <laughs> Because it was set up like we were gonna win the Olympics or something, All like right. if you, if everybody got good scores, like, and then your school could go to the fitness final. I don't know what it was, but it was like, I was the face of how our school was not going to make it in the president's <laughs> fitness test. And that, I, it just was always that kind of thing. I also had a very skinny friend, my friend, uh, very tall, lanky, and we were both running somewhere once, and then she told me, um, that I that I was because I was heavy I didn't have good momentum <laughs> like now I hate when I hear that word even out of context completely it's like oh momentum like
1: yeah.
0: which it didn't I don't even I don't think that's true
1: you know when you were talking about your uh, body your, shame and when that. when that uh, when that came to you I You know, there's a demarcation in in a girl's uh, adolescence when she gets her period, but there should be like a demarcation in her emotional adolescence where she begins tying a sweater around her waist.
0: (laughs) The butt flag is what we like to call that. Yeah?
1: Whenever I see a a woman with the sweater tied around the waist, I I automatically think that she's she's struggling with how she feels about her body. Am I I wrong in feeling that? Because it always looks so, so defensive.
0: It's, well, in my, I would say it's absolutely, I like to think of it as like, it's like the invisibility cape. You know what I mean? Or you're just kind of like, no, look over here. It's fine. Like, mm-hmm. nothing back there. Don't worry about it. Because that's really what you're trying to do. It's like, it's like wearing a, a shift or something. It's just kind of like, let's just uh, make all of this one long invisible area and you yeah. don't have to focus on it.
1: Uh, was there another survey, or is that the only uh, the only one that you you pulled out? That,
0: well, that I feel like that kind of hit a ton of things because it was it's just so like every it goes like that and yeah. the um, which for the people at home I'm scratching the air like a cat, um, but I what I mean is it's so it just obliterates everything and the thing that really hit home was the voices tell me the voices tell me I don't deserve anything which is to me. It took me so long to understand that all of these theories and ideas that I had about myself were the voices in my head that they don't know things. They're scared and they're damaged and they have all these theories that they think are going to protect me in the world, but actually they cause so much more pain and damage. Um, and that they're just these voices. They're not. Uh, it's not logic, which is oh, what I always thought it was, a reason, or I'm just trying to evaluate the world and do the thing that's going to help me the most. It's fear, mostly, and old shit.
1: It, that's such an eloquent way of putting it, and, it, and it's so true. It's the, the, the very thing that we, we think is disciplining and protecting us is actually making us feel alone, separate, different, and, and less than. Yeah. But it's union, so what are you gonna do?
0: (laughs) You can't bust that. You can't fight it. You can't, not in America.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about maybe some seminal moments from, uh, from your life. Where would be a good, a good place to start with your story? You're, you're of Irish descent? I'm of uh, uh, Irish both sides descent. Oh, well, let's talk about the drinking. Who was, who was the drunk?
0: Um, me. I'm number one. Sweet. Yeah, I had all the drinks.
1: Sweet. And how long has it been since you uh, drank?
0: I stopped um, drinking full time in 1997. <laughs> um, I didn't go to a program. I did I, you do flex time for a little while? I did. I did. Yeah. And then I did the points plus system. <laughs> and uh, no, I the reason I stopped drinking is because I started having seizures. So I went full rock and roll with it. And
1: um, so. seizures from not drinking or from drinking too much? Because no. I know when you withdraw from alcohol, people will have serious seizures.
0: Yes, that's true. And uh, they don't know. I still have seizures to this day. I'm still on medication um, for it. The doctor, when I went to County Hospital, uh, when Always I... Always a good time. Such a nice place to be with everyone else that's sick. Um, but the doctor that was seeing me there actually said... Um, these seizures, it's, you don't have epilepsy, these seizures are from alcohol withdrawal. And I said, but I've never stopped drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a good thing to say to another person.
1: And he also, oh, he is. also asked me,
0: how many drinks do you have a day? And I was like, I don't know, like eight or 12. And his eyes like, and, and when you're a comic, that's super normal. Like you go out every night, you do sets, and you get super shit faced. Like that's what we did. So the, I, I was like, what is that? Is that low? Am I not cool? Yeah. Like, should I yeah. be Kurt Cobaining this a little bit more? Yeah. Like, It yeah. didn't seem weird to me your, at all. Your
1: idea of a drinking problem when you're a comic is that you have to pay for your drinks.
0: That's right. That yeah. is a serious problem. Yeah.
1: So I'm going to talk to the
0: manager about yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Um, so, when did you start drinking?
0: When I was, like, 14, I would say. I always wanted to drink really badly. I mean, my family, they're all big drinkers, but... N- I would not call anybody in my family alcoholics because everybody always got their work done. I, no one ever, I can't remember any kind of humiliating experience. No one ever left me at school. It wasn't like that. It was like they were 50s cocktailers, and that's what all their friends were like, too. It's like they were, you they know. They were just
1: heavy drinkers. They were heavy drinkers.
0: Yeah. Um But they were, the, I mean, I feel like uh, the definition of like an alcoholic or per, is that person that's putting everything Aside for their drinking, and that was never the case. It was just kind of like this is. It was like it almost felt cultural, or like this is what we do. Um, but I took it and then just ran with it as far as I could. Basically. Give, me, give me
1: some of the the highlights or the lowlights of your your drinking <sighs> career.
0: Well, there was this one party, <laughs> the one, the first bad one where I knew like. This, I'm just out of control and this is how it is. I went to a party in the summer between sophomore and junior year. We got invited to a junior party. And this party. Is this is high school? This was high school, yeah. And, uh, this party started at like three o'clock in the afternoon, which always a red flag if anyone's in high school. Watch those afternoon parties. Cause pacing, you're not good at pacing when you're in your early teens. Or at least I wasn't at all. And, uh, so we, we start like, there was like, um, We used to call it cuckoo juice, which is just like high C and then every liquor your parents have.
1: We called it plant food. Plant food? Yes, because we would hide it in the plants behind the house, and so we and it was lemonade and then everything that they had, because you didn't want one single bottle to look like it had too much taken out of it. Yeah, right.
0: You had to kind of go. It was like a it was like a quilt of liquor inside, inside that beautiful pastiche of every possible thing you could drink. (laughs) Pete Schnapps and Kahlua. uh, So I got insanely drunk as fast as I possibly could, which was always how I did it. And um, at one point, it was fun, 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 until at one point I kind of came to, like, and I was lifting my head off my cousin Mike's white sweater. It was the 80s. Um, And there was two black eye marks, it looked like there was a set of eyes looking back at me. I had been crying on my cousin's shoulder in the middle of this party and like came to out of the crying of like, what's going on? And then he was like, oh my God, (laughs) like some, some, you know, something very dark and bad was happening. And I was just kind of not there. And another point, I mean, this truly in my head is like, uh, uh, slideshow, cause it was not, it was not continual time. This was just like, oh, this moment, then this moment, then this moment. And another one, which I literally cringe at these moments to this day, and this was in 1984. <laughs> but I still, I'll, this one gets me all the time where I'm, I was laying in the bathtub in the bathroom and I wouldn't get out. And then this boy that was in, he was like the, you know, star athlete of our school, came into the bathroom and was pleading with me. He's like, come on. Get out of the bathroom. <laughs> Come on, Karen, get up. And I was like, just pee. Just pee in front of me. And it was just like one of those things where um, it it was, it's the floating above your body looking down at that picture. I mean, this might not sound so horrible. I wasn't stabbing babies or anything like that. But it's like that thing where. You weren't
1: where, bathing. You were just drunk. I was it not, I
0: didn't draw a bath. Uh, No, 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 I was clothed, but laying in the bathtub like, this is what I'm going to do now. But it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you know what I mean? Like everyone else was still like chatting and flirting. And I was flat in the bathtub trying to get this boy to pee in front of me. Uh, That was a bad one. And then at the end of this party, which was like at 10 o'clock at night, um, I had gone up to a boy who was a senior who I had a huge crush on, loved, And I said, can I talk to you for a second? You said what? Can I talk to you for a second? (laughs) And he uh, said, sure. (laughs) We walked down the sidewalk a little bit. And uh, there were two really popular girls in my class, Mitch Loomis and Jackie Tom, who were great girls, really beautiful girls. And I walked him down the sidewalk. And then I turned around and said, I love you more than Jackie Tom or Mitch Loomis ever could. (laughs) And then started crying again. And then he hugged me, and then my, uh, literally, this was awesome, because it was like in a movie, a uh, station wagon screeched up to the side where we were standing. My friend Christine threw the door open and looked at him and goes, sorry, and grabbed me by the sweater and pulled me in, and we drove away. <laughs> Thank God. Where was she five minutes before? But then, so the whole ride, me and Christine, I was like, I just told John Depp, so I loved him. And like laughing, but then I'd cry, and it was all the, you know, the weird, alcoholic bipolar craziness but then we got dropped off at my parents house and the plan was we were going to go to my friend Christine's mom's house because she wasn't going to be there so we could go there and be drunk my parents on the other hand were having a dinner party <laughs> um, but Christine and I were too drunk to know that this was not where we should be and so we get dropped off and we, it took us like 15 minutes to get to the front door. We were like, like, it was like a bad sketch. We were falling into the bushes and like laughing and talking. And finally I got to the front door and realized, oh, we're at our house, ha- oh, we're like my house. So I looked at her and I go straight to my room and we throw the front door open and we had, it was like one of those ranch style houses where the front door opens into like the living room and the, then the hallway to the bedrooms was over here. And so basically we f- open the front door to my parents having a dinner party and run up the hallway as if they're that they're just going to be like, oh, I don't know what they're doing. And we go into my room, shut the door, and <laughs> I just lay on the bed because I'm beyond shit-faced. And my sister comes, my older sister, two years older, comes, who didn't go to this party, um, too cool to go to that party, comes, throws the door open and is standing there and looking at both of us. And she goes, you guys are so fucked. And then she leaves. (laughs) And then my mom comes in, and she's trying to have a straight face. But we're like, we're just a bowl of cuckoo juice in my room, basically, the human form. And I'm just laying on the bed laughing. And my friend Christine is standing kind of in front of me. And my closet, I had the, you know, 80s bedroom, the closet doors that, like, pull out like that. And so she's standing there. She goes, hi, Mrs. Kilgariff. We went to a party. We just had a couple of beers. It wasn't a big deal. And then she sticks her arm out like that to put it, like, against the wall, like, to be casual. <laughs> but, of course, it's my closet door, so she just falls into the closet. <laughs> and later on, my mom told me, she was like, it was so hard not to laugh at you guys. You were so hilarious. Until the barfing started. And then we were both in the bathroom, barfing for an hour. It was it was really bad. And my father, at one point, I caught my uh, my you know made made eye contact with my father in the hallway, and he was I'd never seen him that mad. He was livid. He was so angry. And we just I just that was kind of how I always did it. I blew it as badly as I possibly could then. And then <laughs> the next day, we had to go out and weed the garden. That was our punishment. I did,
1: too, the first time I got drunk. They made you weed In the hot sun, yes. I had to pull weeds. because they knew yeah. that would be the worst punishment yes.
0: possible, is to go work manual labor. Um, and then my mom, I was so scared. I was still drunk the next day. I was that drunk originally. And then that night, I was just waiting for, you know, what my punishment was, like, you're never leaving the house again or whatever. And my mom said, oh, no, there's no punishment. You just have to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> And that was the worst punishment because I made it complete. I went to a school. Oh, she
1: she knew that you had made an ass of yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And, well, I mean, like, we were, she knew, we were legless. There was no way we, like, pulled that party off like we were superstars and then waited to be uncool when we got to my house. Um... And I told, I'm sure I told her, yeah, at one point I told her, I told John Davis that I loved him. And I went to a tiny Catholic school. So there was like, there was only, there's only 350 kids in my school. So everybody knew, you know, the hotline got lit up that night. And that, I was that girl for two more years. Oh. Yeah.
1: That's a tough thing about uh, small towns or high schools or any, any clique is, yeah. it's, It's
0: indelible.
1: That's one of the nice things about LA is your your fuck ups can sometimes go unnoticed.
0: Yeah, and there's always people that fuck up so much bigger than you. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, what was your relationship with like with your with your family growing up? Was it was there warmth in your in your house? Was it kind of? Uh, yeah,
0: I was I was very lucky. It was a really um, it was a really nice family. My mother had two alcoholics for her parents, so she did everything she could to give us the opposite of her childhood, because her childhood was like nightmarishly bad. Um, My father, so it was kind of like I came from both kinds of Irish. There's, If you're Irish, you know there's good Irish and bad Irish. So there's like the fun, cool Irish with the red cheeks and the kind of, come on to our house. And then there's the bad Irish who are weirdly like, super closed down and, and super judgmentally and biblically and scary and mm-hmm. their houses always smell weird. So my mom had bad Irish family and my dad had the good Irish family. So, um, we were mostly like, my mom was an only child, so we were pretty much all dad family based and that's kind of how we did everything. So we ate dinner together every night, um, and talked and you got to, You know, like that, that's kind of how I learned to like tell stories and be conversationally funny and stuff is that's, that's how my parents were.
1: So there, there was a feeling of safety, like you could talk about what was going on inside you with your, with your family?
0: Oh no, no, we were still Irish. (laughs) (laughs) We just had fun jokes and told stories. (laughs) But there was no...
1: (laughs) So humor was the lubricant then. Yes, exactly.
0: I mean I could, I could tell my mom, my mom was a psychiatric nurse, so she wanted me to tell her everything, but um, I learned very quickly from my sister, like, uh, it, it's not, it's not a good idea. Like, when we were little, I mean, I spilled the beans all the time when I was little, but it's that weird thing that after adolescence where you kind of start to, you, your parents seem, it seems like they don't get it. They don't really know what's going on. Like, they have no idea what's really going on, so I can't, they won't understand. And then I also had a very early, the rebellion where I was always telling my mom, like, I'm gonna leave this town when I'm 18. Like, I had that, Big thing going, and I tried to be goth, which was very sad in my town. Like, I dyed my hair, and I thought that was—I mean, it smelled clothes like You know, it's it, I'm it, so what, punk rock.
1: Were you raised in again? What town? Yeah,
0: Petaluma, California. Okay, yeah.
1: Um, so, what what was your kind of your your feeling? How did you get an outlet for for what it was that that you were feeling? Because it, it it sounds like it was something that was almost like genetic in you that you know the, the feeling of being an outsider of, of not being. sometimes it, it seems like kids get it are raised by parents where they're really invalidated but it sounds like your environment was not invalidating maybe a no. little emotionally closed but so where where do you think the the self-loathing came from
0: I think it was um because I was always like the funny girl um, i I always wanted atten- attention, of course, uh, very badly. I think my parents were really good at the basics of parenting, but they didn't like kids these days. I mean I've actually felt genuine, true rage-filled jealousy of kids, when I see certain kids being raised, where I'm just, you know, kids, their their parents are like, well, what would you like to do? And, like, that question was never asked in our house, you know what I mean? You'd be like, hey, could someone drive me the roller rink? What are you talking about? Go outside. It was like, everything seemed to be an impossible, um, my parents acted like driving around town was this, like, we were asking them for a thousand dollars. Like, it was ridiculous. So there was a little bit of that where it was always it was kind of like go make your own fun or go do your own thing. But then also, how many kids in your family? Just me and my sister. Okay. But I also always had that. uh, I was always trying to be funny and always talking and stuff. So I got that kind of like you're weird thing from a very early age, which was just that kind of kids socializing stuff of like you're weird, you're being weird, and. So I just always thought, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm weird, fine. But I couldn't. I knew I couldn't control myself. I couldn't control my mouth ever. And so in high school, I think that was my outlet. I, um, the drinking. I always was trying. I always wanted to be drinking, but I was always talking and I was always gossiping. I was a terrible, terrible gossip. And I was always trying to be funny. Um, and then I, when I was like about a sophomore, or, and maybe it was cause of that party, but then I started eating. And the eating, the eating, I gained like 40 pounds between like junior and senior year. Um, cause I was just, I wasn't popular. Like I think we all had that kind of John Hughes in the 80s, like, okay, now I'm gonna be Molly Ringwald and some Judd, um, I was gonna say Judd Hirsch. What's the, which? Judd Nelson. Judge Nelson,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> Judge Reinhold, um, yeah. you're kind of waiting for that moment mm-hmm. in high school, and it never happened for me. And then I was positive, like, okay, then now I'm, I am really weird. Like, there's, I'm gross. And so then I was kind of like, fuck it, I'm gonna eat Doritos then. And it was, an, it was so easy to do that. It was so easy to not try and to, and to justify it in my mind is like, well, they don't get me or. Um, they're superficial. What I love is that, like, I think a lot of people do that. Where if you are not being courted actively, then the accusation to the other sex is always like, "They're so superficial." Yeah. Where it's like, I was in love with the guy that was like the quarterback of the football team. Yeah. Like, I certainly wasn't trying to be interesting or yeah. play
1: my range. They're, they're shallow because they're not validating my fantasy. Exactly. <laughs> where
0: are the roses? <laughs> That was like, that was me all through high school. So then I just, I think it was that. I just took it in this like, well, then I'm a freak and kind of went and I'll dye my hair and I'll like the cure. And
1: that's such uh, alcoholic thinking too, because it's so binary. It's like there's no, you know, maybe it's awesome to be one of many. It's I'm a piece of shit or I better be fucking prom queen.
0: Exactly. Yes, there was no I mean, that realization in, in therapy, when I was like thirty six, where my my therapist would be like, Well things are actually much more complex than that. And I'd be like, Ooh yeah. It isn't it isn't yeah. just all or nothing. It isn't uh, I win or I'm the biggest loser of all time. Yeah. Which is like such an it's not as glamorous when you have that realization. It's not you know, where's the thrill?
1: Yeah, the the <laughs> ego isn't too good with nuance. It's mm-mm. uh mm-mm. So any other seminal moments from your uh, your childhood or your or your adolescence that kind of stick out?
0: Um do they have to be hideously painful?
1: No. No, it could be something as positive or transformative.
0: Well, that's boring though, right?
1: No. No it's not.
0: Um I'll tell you this when I went to college, this was kind of I went to college and uh in Sacramento, which was a terrible choice, but this was another thing where it's not I, I don't want to sound accusatory because I really had it good in terms of family. But my parents did a lot of this kind of stuff. And maybe this was like um, an 80s thing or maybe they just this was their choice. But they did a lot of like, we're going to go on a cruise. Like now that you guys are 17, we're going to go party. We're going to go have our fun. And so oftentimes my sister and I would just kind of like be home. I mean, that's when the, the big party started. We had a party so big at our house once we had to call the cops on it so that people would leave our house. Because it was so, we were like, "Holy shit! This is gone. this, has this out is of crazy." Um,
1: yeah. uh, was there a pizza spinning on a turntable like in the John Hughes movie?
0: <laughs> there was a boy stuck under a glass yeah. coffee table? and We yeah. didn't even have a glass coffee yeah. table. Um,
1: An Asian kid in a tree? Yes. Yeah.
0: Our movie, our, or the life, of the movie, forget it. Um, <laughs>
1: I think all of those 80s movies could be summed up with the the movie poster of like Andrew McCarthy without a shirt wearing a tie in a tree shrugging.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what happened in the 80s? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was that was kind of always the goal. But the uh, the flip side of that, which they don't ever talk about in the John Hughes movies was like, I decided, I picked my own college by myself because my friend in high school said, "Come on, let's be roommates." And I was like, "Okay." Like, that you shouldn't pick a college that way. I, there should be more guidance.
1: I did, I did the exact same thing. It's
0: so weird. And these mm. days, like, um, I have my friend Adrian, I remember them talking about, well, we're gonna go with Connor, their son who is going to college that next year. We're driving down to Santa Barbara and then we're gonna drive to Google. And I was like, fuck you guys. Fuck Connor. He's got all this support and adults are going to help him make a choice. It's bullshit. I literally, I remember filling out the application like, This seems like somebody else should be here with me. Oh, well. (laughs) Oh, well, I guess I'll drink a Budweiser. (laughs) uh, So that decision was was a bad decision because Sacramento wasn't like, it wasn't for me. And I knew it, like, as we drove up, I was just like, "Ah, this is going to be. But... So I went to college there for a year and a half, and then got kicked out for having bad grades, because um, I never went to class, because of course I had no experience in being in the world. So
1: you were busy having seizures.
0: I would <laughs> no, that, not yet. Not yet. That's the next chapter. Okay. Um, this was pre-seizure, still drinking. And going, oh, I can do whatever I want every day. Well, then why would I go to school? Like none of, I hadn't thought any of that through of like it's going to be on me to actually do the thing that people are paying for and that I agreed to do by signing up to go here. So I just like fucked off every day and slept in and did what I, it, I loved it. It was like so exciting.
1: Now what would you think when the thought would occur to you that my parents are going to see the results of this? They're, they will see my grades. What would you think when that, would that thought not pop into your head or would you just brush it away and say, I'll deal with it when that comes up?
0: Yeah, I brushed it. It was total denial all the time. It was kind of like, it's fine, it's fine. That, that voice, the it's fine voice has done me the most disservice in my life. It'll be fine, it's fine. Um, cause then it's like anything that I want to do is justified. And I remember when the, my final report card came that was going to say, and, Congratulations for your .10 grade point average. You're kicked out of Sacramento State. Um, I just kept checking the mailbox every day because it was like summer. I'm thinking I was going to get it. So before my dad but of course he's watching me go to the mailbox every day like I'd never had a big interest in mail before that it wasn't like I was always like what look at these coupons they sent us it was like never a thing so suddenly I'm always there so of course he's on to me and then he's like did your report card come I'd be like nope it's so weird there must be a problem in the office there's such an
1: endearing quality to your fuck ups (laughs) (laughs) you know
0: because they're so dumb (laughs) <laughs> They're just so con- kind like, of but here's what I'll have to say. So that was very, because I knew, it's like what you're saying. I knew I was fucking up. I watched myself doing it. I watched myself making these terrible choices. I did it anyway. I kept doing it. I got kicked out of college. And I mean, I had it good. My parents were paying for my education. They were paying for everything. I had. They opened up a little bank account so I could go get my monthly stipend. I mean, that's like the American dream. And I was like... Fuck it. Like, I'm going to drink Keystone Light. That was my choice. And so then That alone
1: should have been your bottom. I mean... <laughs> that's just a horrible choice.
0: <laughs> it's disgusting. Yeah. But the cans were lined or something. There was something about it. That, there was a great selling Some advertising point. gimmick. It was the queen of beers, I think.
1: As opposed to...
0: Anyway, um... But the, again, when I they finally found out... Uh, My parents just said, well, we love you, but you're cut off. So suddenly I was in Sacramento with no money and no job and no school to go to and no means of support. And now I was truly on my own. And that was, that was a humongous, that was a big milestone moment. I can still remember the feeling of sitting on the back steps of a house. I just signed a lease agreement with my three other friends. I was supposed to come up with like 300, 400 bucks a month. And sitting back there like staring at the sky like, oh my god, like what am I gonna do? Um, but then that's when I started doing stand up. Because I figured, I really wanted to do it secretly, but I was like, oh i you know, I'm sure I won't, was the kind of thought in my head. And at that point I was like, well I might as well. Because I don't have anything to lose. I don't have anything at all. So I might as well do it. And then because, I think because that was the first thought I had, like, literally a month later, did you ever know Arthur Montmorency? Mm-mm. He's a stand-up comic. He started in Sacramento. He moved down to LA and he worked on the 70, that 70s show for the first couple seasons. Really cool guy, but very dark, very bitter, classic stand-up comic. And I met him randomly in a bar one night, like a month after that happened, the month after I was cut off and thought, you know, like I'm the biggest loser and my entire extended family. Um, Uh, my friend and I were at this bar and I was talking to him, like I was introduced to him and we were talking and talking and talking and finally he goes, are you a stand-up comic? And I go, no. And he goes, well you should be. And invited me to come do his, uh, weekly show. And it was, it felt very like fateful and deep. I I was kind of like, someone, some random guy was kind of like, you do this. He
1: sees me. He sees inside me.
0: Yeah. He sees the secret dream I've always had.
1: What did that feel like?
0: It was fucking incredible, especially because after all that fucking up, I felt like, well, this is just who I am. Like, I'm only a fuck-up, and I only make bad decisions, and I'll never get anything I want because this is what I do. So I don't, it's that thing, the voices would tell me, yeah, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to get what I want. Um, and I, how smart could I be if I can't even do these basic things? And in retrospect, I never wanted to go to college. I just did it. I mean, that's what you were supposed to do. And I remember thinking that when I was like 17, where everyone was like, I'm going to go to Berkeley. I'm going to go to Davis or whatever. And I would just think, I just want to go get an apartment and like smoke cigarettes by myself. Like that's what, that's what I wanted to do after high school. I wanted to not go to school anymore really badly, but I just did what I was supposed to do. Um, so it was actually kind of amazing because I think, I think things kind of will out. Um, in a way, uh, through bad stuff. I mean, through fuck-ups. You have to, you have to kind of smash through your life to get to something else. I, like that idea that you're supposed to somehow make great decisions and glide through and be like A, B, C. All the, you know, every all the everything's lighting up for me. Like it just does not work that way, and it shouldn't work that way. Yeah, and, so-
1: and sometimes I think the thing that unlocks the door to where you're meant to be is the failure. Investing a bunch of emotional energy in something that kind of egotistically you want, uh, or you think you should want to do. Yeah. And then having that kind of fall apart and, and then this other thing just kind of uh, weirdly, weirdly comes in.
0: Come in. Because, yeah, I think, I didn't want to be weird. I you know, I didn't want to be the weird person. I definitely wanted to be a stand-up, but I also wanted to do the thing my parents wanted me to do and I wanted to be like all my other friends that were going to college and stuff. But if I was actually being true to myself, which wasn't going to come for another 25 years or whatever, but if I were, then I would have kind of peeled off and been like, I'm going to I'm going to go into San Francisco and, you know, see get a job and see what I want to do. But that even the idea of being that independent um wasn't even a consideration at that point.
1: So what's what's the next kind of uh moment in the in your arc personally or emotionally?
0: Uh <laughs> well, I once I started stand up things went very well for me very quickly, which was good and bad. Um because uh, because I think it's that thing of, it really was what I was supposed to do. I mean, I, I believe that about myself. And so I, you know, would do comedy contests, do well in them or whatever, go, and I had a lot of support. Like, I met a lot of San Francisco comics who would come up to Sacramento for contests or for whatever. And so I met, uh, Greg Barents and I met Karen Anderson and I met Pat Noswald and Blank Patch and all these people and kind of found my niche or whatever. And then I got an agent. Um, Margaret Cho was a good friend of mine, and she had an agent. She had me send my tape to her. So I got an agent, like from living in San Francisco, which is was kind of unheard of at the time. Like you would have to be down there, moving and shaking. And I, so I, I got an agent on it. And she was like, "You just have to come down here and start auditioning." And so I moved to L.A. at the same time as almost all of us moved to L.A. And then. Started auditioning, and this was this long ago. I ended up getting a holding deal at NBC for $100,000. Oh, my God. Uh, Which, um, this is how they used to make TV. They would get talent, and they would give you a big chunk of money to not take other jobs, which sounds so like old studio system. Uh, Because these days, they're like, you're lucky if you can audition for something. The amazing talent is everybody's scrambling. uh, Because they just don't do it that, that way anymore. So I had, like, these huge, great, amazing um, opportunities and chances. But I was still a huge drunk. Um, drink Drinking was really my passion and my priority. And then when I moved to L.A., I realized I was way too fat. I was way, way, way too fat to be in the city limits. And so <laughs> just I was taking up way too much room. And so um, I got... Uh, How did you
1: get through the roadblock?
0: I don't know. Yeah. They must you have seen your belly me. In. Yes, exactly. Um, and,
1: and wore a sweater around yeah. your
0: waist. <laughs> I tied that invisibility <laughs> sweater on. <laughs> so uh So, because in San Francisco I was fine to myself. I didn't I never really thought about it. Um but in LA, of course, it's the the land of the anorexic actress that doesn't take dressing on her salad and which was very foreign to me. And so after like six months there I, was, I it was so uncomfortable. It was like it was like having to walk around naked every day. That's how deeply uncomfortable with myself I was there. So I started taking diet pills, and this was back when it was Fen before mm-hmm. Fenfen. Um, so it was just the upper diet pill. I went to a doctor in Burbank and uh, started taking them, and I lost thirty pounds in like a month and a half or something. What's just his, like
1: what's his name? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, he's he's no longer a doctor. He now he works in Guatemala. Um, it was the shadiest doctor's appointment I've ever had. It was hilarious. One of the nurses, uh, you know that part in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they open up the Ark of the Covenant, and those two soldiers look in, and then they start, like, uh, all of their skin. Uh, starts to peel off their body. That's what the receptionist looked like, but with a long red wig on. She was like a walking skeleton. Wow. Horrifying. Like when I walked in, I was like, oh, this is bad. And then the, the nurse that weighed you and like told you like what you, what your goal should be didn't have a bot, one of her bottom teeth was missing. So it was like skeleton in the Ozarks. I was just like, what, what is this place? And then I walked in to actually get my check Checkup to have the doctor give you the prescription. And it was literally, he was, the man was like in the shadows the entire, he was just like, hello, nice to meet you, like lightly touch my wrist. Okay, here's your prescription. And then I'm basically on pharmaceutical speed. So I was, my heart raced constantly. I mean, that is the kind of amazing part about speed, I guess, is it's like you're constantly jogging but doing nothing. So I'd just be sitting around like, Turn the channel. I don't want to watch this show. It was, I was a lunatic. I was and, a lunatic. And drinking,
1: which is such a scary combination.
0: It's, well, I'm positive that's why I started having the seizures. I'm, I'm positive those diet pills had everything to do with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, when I would go, so we'd go do sets and I would, I would do my comedy, like I would talk really fast like this and I would talk until I ran out of breath and then I would, and then I would do something else. Like it was, it's really not funny at all. Um, but not good comedy. And then, Afterwards, we'd go to a bar, and I would drink 11 beers, and it would just start to cut the tension for me. So, yeah, the drinking, 11
1: beers will cut a lot of things.
0: You'd think. Yeah. You'd think. Um, so, anyway, that kind of, like, Coleman, you know, that went on and on. And at, in the midst of that, um, in my holding deal... So I'm like that, of course, now I'm doing that. Like the the great irony of like trying to take diet pills to lose weight, to be on TV, to compete, to da-da-da. I get apart. I'm so crazed and drunk and on these diet pills that like one day I just skipped rehearsal. I just, in my mind, was like, I need to go for a walk and just didn't show up at the Drew Carey show. So of course I got fired. It was like that, that kind of shit going on where there was no one there to be like, hey, listen, decision maker. Um, we need to look at these priorities really quickly. So, I was, so, you know, I got fired from that. I, I was just a mess, basically. And then it kind of just, and I was a terrible auditioner. I was a terrible auditioner anyway, but then I was on speed. I would, I had this strange biker anger when I was in auditioning. So I was like, supposed to be reading for the best friend, but I'd be like, yeah, well, I guess I'll see you later. And they'd be like, could you do it like a little uh, less angry? And I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then...
1: God damn it, I wish there was footage of that. I know. God damn
0: it. I know. It was, uh, and the funniest part about all of it was I had lost, I was the thinnest I'd ever been in my life. I was, uh, fine, you know, like I had lost all this weight and I was still considered fat. Like, I was still considered the a chunky girl or a overweight girl or whatever in terms of auditioning. And that was a big... Uh, that was a big kind of uh, I, I don't want to say aha moment. Do you use Oprah phrases on your show? <laughs> that was a huge aha moment for me. Um, because I just realized there was there was no winning in that. There's no you can't be thin enough in Hollywood and and, and at my body type, unless I have like my thigh muscles scraped off of my bones, I will never look like any of those people. It's just not how I'm built. And, uh, so I did, then I had the seizures, then I stopped drinking, and then I started doing comedy about the fact that I am not built to look like that. And I think that's when I really found my voice in stand-up, is when I first started doing all that. And I, my comedy started to get really good, because it was, it started to get real and kind of true. Um.
1: And how did Mr. Show come about?
0: Well, those, um, David and Bob were, Laura Milligan, my friend Laura Milligan, who was from San Francisco, started doing a night of comedy in L.A. called. It was called Tantrum. And it, looking back now, was the most incredible array of talent. So, like, Tenacious D did one of their first sets ever at that show. And Bob and David were workshopping sketches for Mr. Show. And, um, uh, you know, Mary Lynn Rice did one of her first stand-up sets at that show. Um, <clears throat> there's all kinds. Will Ferrell used to do... Uh, this hilarious bit with two other guys—they they call themselves a Canadian performance art troupe called Simpatico—and they would come out wearing. Um, like speed skater unitards with the hoods and they would just pass a ball really fast between the three of them to weird music and then yell, simpatico! It was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. It was so fucking hilarious. And Molly Shannon did sketches there. It was like this really cool thing. So anyway, there was like a little group of people or kinda of, it was actually kind of a big group of people that all hung out. That came out of that um, circle, and we also all drank together constantly and went to dinner every night. We were like this weird, big codependent
1: group of people that hung out. Like a funny Manson family. (laughs) Yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) But we killed with comedy. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Let me let me see how we're uh, we're doing on time. Uh, Do you want to talk about your mom? Sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and then I say no and drop the mic and walk off stage. How dare you? No, my, um, well, my mom, who was the matriarch, obviously, of our family, very, very intelligent woman, very, a working mother all my life, very, um, very feminist, very pro, uh, woman. She's, I think she's the reason I can do a lot of the things that I can do these days, um, cause she was this amazing example. She liked. She used to do stuff like in the 80s, when there would be the terrible, you know, the uh, economic stuff going on on TV. My dad would go, "Girls, you better marry a lawyer," and then my mom would go, "Bullshit! You better be a lawyer." And there's it's like a little sitcom. Um, but when uh, uh, my grandmother growing up um, had Alzheimer's, and she uh, died of it. And she lived with us for a little while, which was terrible and the nightmare of Alzheimer's, if anyone knows. And I'm sure a lot of people have gone through it. Um, having like an elderly grandparent that loses their mind, you know, at the dinner table with you, it's really painful. And so, uh, my mom, and uh, Alzheimer's goes down, um, is inherited on if you, it's passed through the mother. That's the gene. And so my mom got it early onset when she was 63. And so she kind of went from being this incredibly powerful, self-possessed, um, you know, she was the advice nurse at Kaiser for like 15 years. Like when you called up because you were scared of the rash on your arm, it was my mom was the one that was like, honey, don't worry about it. Put some cortisone on it. You're fine. Like she was that person. And she got uh, early onset Alzheimer's and basically um, lost her shit and, uh, is that's that's what we the past 10 years have been horrible for that because it kind um if you've ever gone through having a relative with alzheimers it's kind of like they slowly get replaced by someone else right in front of you and it goes it's very slow and it's very subtle but it's horrifying like i i compare it to um it's like the slowest real time horror movie the being in one, so it's like the guy's coming at you with a knife, and you're like, "Holy fucking shit! A guy's gonna kill me with a knife!" And then he's like just walking super slow, so you're like, "Okay, that guy's—he's coming. He's gonna kill me." And then he's just still coming. And after a while, you're like, "All right, enough, get, bring the knife. I'm ready." You know, stab me because the, it's so fucking painful. It's so weird, and you can't—like, you, you get mad at them, but they don't know what they're doing. And it's like the it, it, our whole family kind of. Got completely broken down. Um, in the middle of it, my dad got uh, had melanoma, and he had to go through radiation for oh my God. for cancer, which was super crazy. My my sister and I just had this thing because we were so Irish and the way we were raised, where it's not like we would get together and hug and cry and talk about it. We just kind of like really roll our eyes at each other. That was the way we <laughs> dealt with it. We're just like, "Can you even believe that? But that?" That's all we ever really said. And that's why I got into therapy, because I, at the same time, was head writing on the Ellen DeGeneres talk show, which was like, had just launched. And I had never had a job like that. It was my first, um, it was my first job managing adults. Uh, and all the adults were writers who were friends of mine in comics. And that was so difficult and so stressful. And then having that stuff going on at home that, I was a, so miserable and I was such a miserable person. I was I was uh I was a tough person to be around at that time. I just was always um I was always feeling like a fraud and a failure at work, which is a terrible. If you ever have a boss like that, it's those kind of people you can't tell them anything cuz they know everything already even though they're wrong. Um they you know, you try to say, "Hey, here's my input." And they're like, "Hey, yeah, yeah." Those are the people that are like in deep fear of being a fraud or that they don't, they can't take that, um, any input because they're so afraid to lose what they have. And that's, I, so I had that going on and, and my mom and, uh, so I finally, when I realized I would, by the day of the week, hate a different person really deeply. It would always be like, oh, he's, I'm going to kill him. He's the reason, da da, da. And then that would go away, and be like, Tuesday, she is such a bitch, I can't stand her. And finally I was like, okay, it's, I'm the common denominator. Like, this is about me. And I went to therapy, and the first therapist I got... <laughs> My friend was a therapist, so she's like, I can recommend people for you. Who? What kind of person would you like to go talk to? And I said, I really need to talk to Olympia Dukakis. <laughs> and she was like, okay, um, I think I can do that. So I, the first woman I went to was this older lady who did look a little bit like her. She had gray hair and whatever. But she was like, why, why do you need to talk to a therapist, Karen? I was like, well, I've got this stuff going on on my... And before I had like the first sentence out, she was like, and how does that make you feel? And I was like, okay, I need to take the mic for a while. Like, you can't, you, I just need to talk. And she was really weirdly trying to drive it all the time. So I stopped going to her. I only went to her once or twice. And, um, then I, then I was, I almost had that thing of like, I can't do therapy. Like it didn't work that time. So I'm never going to try again. It was almost like being rejected
1: and dating. and, And so many people that have never tried therapy don't realize that the vibe of the therapist has everything to do with how successful it will be. And that there's a thousand different vibes and energies that, and a good therapist, you will just be able to melt in front of them and all the stuff that needs to come up will come up naturally yes so did you find that in your second therapist yes
0: and the weirdest thing was I just went on the. it was like basically I was like well fuck it I don't need therapy and then of course I was back at work and in two weeks I was like how ha- you know again having a nervous breakdown so I just went on this like psych- psychology today website and looked under my town and there was like a lady that seemed nice and the first meeting I had with her first of all I loved her furniture so I was like yeah this is gonna <laughs> yes a nice seafoam green mid-century, and then she was just, she had this thing, like, it's so hilarious because she's she's really brilliant, and she's really human, and she's really right there with you, and she does a lot of stuff, like, you tell her a big hideous story, like all the shit I've told you guys today, and then she'd be like this, that seems like a lot to hold, <laughs> and that is like... No one in my life had ever said anything similar like that because it's like it's like compassionate and it's like you know it's empathetic but at the same time it's not like I'm going to solve it for you so you stop talking it's not it you know no one she's not trying to do anything
1: you felt heard and felt, I felt
0: heard and held held which is hilarious i love saying that to I people i totally
1: i totally know that feeling and it's so fucking awesome
0: yeah that you don't have to scramble around for a big answer that it doesn't work that way it's like you just have to barf and barf and barf and get it all out and it's like having a stomach flu for for me now like eight years (laughs) just keep on barfing you keep on barfing and it just gets a little bit easier and then you can kind of see like the thing that's amazing to me is those voices back to the voices in the head where she has made it so clear of just like identifying that these voices it's kind of like a you know, the King Arthur's Court or the round table where each knight is trying to do something for you. And it, they're trying to be on your side even though sometimes it seems so against you. So their voice voices that are saying, you know, don't go out, you look fat. And she would say like, well, what do you think they're trying to protect you from? What do you think that voice is trying to protect you from? What, did, what do you think the fear is underneath that? So instead of being like, I'm crazy, we have to get rid of these voices with pills or something, it's like, no, let's actually figure out what the real fear is underneath that, where the risk is for you.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, when, when therapy is good, it feels I like... i a
0: beer right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That crack sounded so good. It's get, that first sip is gonna it's, be so good. It's, it's all a, bubbles.
1: It's a Keystone light. You know, it,
0: they serve exclusively Keystone in yeah. Portland.
1: Yeah. That'd be so awesome. When therapy is good, it feels like somebody is holding your hand, walking down a dark tunnel, and just kind of shining a flashlight when it needs to be shined. But they're not. They're not dragging you, and they're not pushing you. They're it it feels kind of gentle. But ever so slightly kind of prodding, you know, ever so slightly of just just going to nudge you an inch this way. What do you think? What do you think about that? And you you get to feel like you're discovering it. They're helping you discover it. They're not telling you something they read in a book. Good therapy feels like they're helping you discover something good that has always been inside you. Yeah. For some reason has been muted.
0: Yes. Well, yes, because I feel like. You know, it's depending on your range of issues or whatever. But for me, it just felt like it wasn't that I didn't know. Like I know where I wanted to be, which I feel like I'm the closest to it I've ever been in my life. Like this, and this weekend in particular, it's I'm having the greatest fucking time. I'm I, I'm certainly not thin in any way that I thought I was supposed to be when I was in my 20s, and I could give a shit. I just could, I've eaten so many voodoo donuts this weekend, I can't even tell you. What's right? your, do
1: you have a favorite?
0: Um, well, anything with a bunch of cereal on top of it. Like, fuck, yeah, uh, do it. But I feel like there was a time where it was just like, don't eat that. I'm gonna eat it. Now I'm disgusting. I'm a, I'm a bad right? person. It's yeah. like that crazy ping pong in your mind. It's just so pointless. It's like, you know, you, I don't know. It's, she has helped me realize that, like, all this stuff is, is within me, it's within my power. Whether or not I choose to make decisions is, is my own. And it isn't bad if I don't. Like, I remember talking to her where I, I smoked a lot of pot in that period of time I was talking about, cause that just, I couldn't figure out what else to do with myself and I couldn't drink. And, um, I told her that finally one day and I, cause I wasn't talking about it to her because I felt like she would be like, you have to stop doing that. And her answer was, everybody needs a little bit of oblivion. And I was just like, I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> you are helping me so much. And that's like true. It's like you, in my mind, I have all these things of here's how you're supposed to be, here's how you're supposed to do it, blah blah blah. I'm so wrong. I couldn't be more wrong. So that idea of like I'm smoky pop, but I shouldn't. It's like just en- if you're gonna do it, enjoy it. Like don't do it and beat yourself up for right. it. Like then, then you just get nothing ever.
1: Yeah. That that's such a uh, a beautiful. Experience, uh, you know, what, what you're describing. I just, uh, I love, I love hearing stuff like that. Mm. Um, where do you feel like you're at, uh, today with, with stuff? Do you feel like you're in a lot of self-acceptance? I mean, you seem, you are a different person than, I bumped into you at a party, I think it was at Dave Rath's, maybe like, like 12 or 13 years ago. And, um, we had never officially met, and I, I think I might have introduced myself, but, you scared me. You you intimidated me. <laughs> yep. And, um...
0: That was my thing. You should... Yeah. Oh, so good. I was really yeah. good at it, actually. Yeah, you
1: were really intimidating. That
0: was my defense. It was actually... it To me, it felt like that was the only thing I had. That was the only card I had to play. So it was... And that's that vulnerability thing we were talking about earlier. The idea of... I could never be vulnerable or nice to people because, in my mind, you can't be a nice, fat girl. That's the saddest thing to be. So I was going to be the girl that scared scared you away from that area of the room like what what is the benefit of that like I know I never went back in and said okay so you can do that now what like now now you're smoking in the corner and everyone thinks you're a big bitch what do we get from this like that I never thought that through in any way
1: maybe the donuts are all yours
0: yeah exactly <laughs> get away their money but uh, yeah so I my thing was just I could never let anybody know that I wanted I wanted to meet you. I I saw you on TV. I thought you were the fucking so hilarious on Dinner and a Movie. Like oh. I, I swear to God, right? <laughs> because i would watch that and like what's more irritating than interstitial shit during a movie you're trying to watch or you're just like oh my god and they usually pick people they're so terrible and you guys were so i mean i could tell you were riffing i could tell you were you were making stuff up on the spot it wasn't it wasn't all scripted and i had so much respect for that like you, the comfort you had on camera um, so I'm sure I was thrilled to be around you and I think a lot of people do this where it's like you see the person that you like or you admire and then you're kind of like I have to figure out a plan like how am I gonna get them to I can't look
1: as pathetic as I feel <laughs>
0: exactly I can't stick my hand out and say you're great which is what everybody wants in the world yes. instead you're like I'm gonna say this thing loudly then she'll turn around you know like it's, I, I do that constantly so my thing was always because I was so intimidated in LA, I was so, you know, so insecure and all these things. My thing was, I'm going to be the person that acts like they hate everybody because everybody's always kissing everybody's ass. So that's going to be fascinating because, like, <laughs> right? Famous people are going to be like, why is she mad at me? How else am I going to break through if I don't, you know, do, if I don't do that? And I had a lot of people, t- tons of people tell me that. We were just like, oh, the first time I met you, I thought you hated my guts. I was like, yes, that's right. You played perfectly into my
1: plan. Well, then when when we did uh, the live walking the room uh, and we met backstage after having not seen each other probably since that, that party, your demeanor had completely changed, and I felt so safe around you, and I just wanted... I wanted to give you a hug I just wanted to say oh my god you're, you don't hate me you you are you know uh, not somebody that I should be afraid of
0: oh the porcupine lady lost her spikes
1: yeah that's
0: and, well and I think that's the my lesson was going through the stuff with my mom going through that stuff at work or with that job that made me feel so nothing. Um, what I realized, like on the other end of that, was it's so good to go through terrible things. It, it I mean, for me anyway, it was the best. And maybe because, c- because I was kind of spoiled all my life and had it really good, and I didn't, re- I thought I knew, like, oh, I'm, I have angst, and it's like I had no idea what angst was. And then I really went through serious, terrible shit. And then you realize, then you're just so fucking grateful. Then you're grateful for a smiling face. And you're like, any moment that you have that's nice or that you have friends or whatever, like I just had that, I mean, it. I don't want to judge it. Right now I want to say it sounds cheesy or whatever, but it isn't fucking cheesy because it's actually the process that I think people go through their life like resisting or finally falling into. And I resisted it for so long because I was like this, It was like I had a bunch of plaque on me. I was just so stiff and tight, and I controlling. And you, you needed to see me this certain way. And I needed to be strong. I needed to be strong. That was what it was. You couldn't see me as any like. You needed to be scared of me. You needed to fear me. You needed to think I was hilarious. But other than that, like you, nobody could come in which is so terrible and lonely and totally miserable.
1: So, so lonely-making. And, you know, the irony is real strength is just putting yourself out there unapologetically and saying, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. Well,
0: and also because then you can, then other people that kind of feel that same feeling or whatever, when you can kind of just hang out. And I also realized, because I stopped doing comedy when I was working on that show, Completely, And I was just like, I wasn't that good at it or whatever I was. It wasn't meant to be. And I just basically shut down an entire, like pretty much the core of myself to go do this other thing, like to make money basically. And I made myself so miserable um, by doing that, by kind of just dismissing like, oh, comedy, who cares? Anyone could do that. Which is like, no, actually, not everybody.
1: I had breakfast with Dana uh, Gould this morning, and he said the exact same thing.
0: When that, he was working that, on The Simpsons?
1: When he was working on The Simpsons. Yeah. And at first he was like, I've you know, got the, making all this money and I'm working on this popular show. But there was a part of himself that wasn't being able to be expressed. And, and so he started do, going back to doing stand up comedy. And part of himself was judging himself going, why am I doing this? I've been given this great opportunity. Why am I walking away from it? But he could feel that there was something inside of him that still, still needed to be e- expressed.
0: Yeah, because it's not, um, for me, it's not like I made that decision. Like, I was going to be a doctor, and then I became a stand-up comic. Like, it's what I wanted to be from really early on, and I got to do it, and it became my... It is kind of my identity in a way. Like, not in the way of, like, I can't stop riffing, but in the way of just, I, I love comedy. I love to be in that world. And to be away from that world made me in- insanely miserable. And so to, to be able to get back... Uh, to do it and to do it the way I want, and to know that it means something to be a woman on stage, speaking her mind, being as she is, and kind of being like right, everybody. Like it does, it's not that common anymore. I, I see. I think a lot of people, a lot of female comics, feel this need on stage to be to kind of um, please the audience in a way, or you know, be something, be be uh, talk about blowjobs or be you know be like the boner girl or whatever right. and you don't see as often people that are just kind of saying there, are like well here's actually my opinion here's my point of view i'm an i'm a human being aside from the hand job um abilities that i have which i'm not in any way deriding because everybody needs those but i think it's i realize the importance of it i think
1: uh, well, we just got the light, so we're gonna, we're gonna have to wrap things up. But first of all, I want to give you a, a round of applause and thank, thank you so much. Thanks. Is, is there anything that you would like to, uh, to plug? Your album is, is great. She has a five song, uh, album out called Behind You.
0: Behind You, and, uh, that's on Bandcamp. Um
1: Bandcamp.com?
0: Band, uh, Bandcamp.org? Okay. <laughs> no, no, it's dot .com.
1: Okay. That was just
0: Internet humor. Yeah. <laughs> Can't help it. Yeah. Um, and then... You
1: have a beautiful voice. I'm, I'm kind of... St- Bum that your guitar didn't make it I know you guys I song. left
0: my guitar in Moshe Kosher's <laughs> car <laughs> we were up till five in the morning last night I fucking love this festival so much it's we're so having great the best time but yeah when I got up at uh 1:15 today mm-hmm. and then realized I had no way to get a hold of my guitar mm-hmm. I could walk over there and do it at a- acapella number for you <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I could stay here and do it. Okay. Uh, I was totally joking. Yeah. Like I can jam out some Manhattan transfer for you.
1: Well, you know what I'm thinking since we're, we're running short on time. Um, did you bring any loves to, to uh, share with us?
0: What do, what do you li- mean? A list
1: of, of fears? Did I ask you to bring a list of fears and loves? No, but I I I'd, I'd to do love that. to
0: do it, yeah.
1: Okay. Would you want to uh, rip on some? Because what I'd love to do is have the audience share their loves, too. So I'd love to alternate between you sharing a love and audience members I'd sharing a love. I'd love to do, love. do that. So, Can I say, wait,
0: when yeah. everyone is saying their fears before, yeah. my fear is getting caught in a place where I lose my pants somehow and having no one that has the same pant size as me. <laughs> and that was the thing. Like, seriously? I would never date a guy that had smaller pants than me because in an emergency situation I wouldn't be able to slide his pants on and run out the door. That's a serious thing. And if I'm around skinny girls and I I like start to get a little bit of like planning of where are the closest pair of sweats that I could find, where if there's a flood or a fire, how am I gonna make sure I have pants?
1: That is awesome. That is awesome. So, uh, anybody that wants to share a love, would you just come up to the stage? And one at a time, we'll just have you come up and and uh, share a uh, love with Karen. Don't be don't be afraid.
0: It can be the love of me, Elsa.
1: Yeah, here we go, here we go. Do you want to you want to do your uh, first one? You just keep your mic, and I'll and I'll give them okay. uh, give them my mic.
0: No, you go first. Okay. No, no. Okay. <laughs> I love I love love bartering. Okay. So. Uh,
1: and give us your name and where you're from.
0: I am Sal, and I am from Portland, North Portland. Um uh it makes a difference.
1: Um, <laughs> the St. John's neighborhood.
0: Ooh. <laughs> awesome. Uh
1: um, my love is when we get our first real
0: snowfall and it just totally makes the whole world quiet.
1: I love that one. Thank yeah, you. That's good. Karen.
0: Uh, I love the crack of a beer. <laughs> I think I said that already. I'm sorry, but I really, I really, lo- I love a crack of a beer, and it drives me crazy in movies because they never do the sound effect right when people drink beer. You can hear the water just slap back down into the bottle, and like you, you sip a beer out of a bottle. That fizz sound. That, I'm such an alcoholic. Okay, here you go. Hi,
1: I'm uh, Brian. I'm from Idaho. Um, I love uh, being in my element. I love seeing when other people in theirs and when they find the things that they're good at. Um, Paul, love the show and love how it's taken me out of that zone where I'm afraid of failing as well as succeeding. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. I love,
0: I don't mean mine aren't all going to be about drinking, but my, (laughs) I really love being at a bar or a club and seeing uh, kind of a middle-aged, shit-faced, drunk guy dancing by himself. That's my. I could watch it for hours. It's my favorite. And sometimes they'll have a fedora that they'll do stuff with, like to try to flip down their arm or whatever. It's, it It fills me with joy.
1: I'm Vanessa, and I'm from Seattle. And my love is, I love watching my dog swim because that's when he's the happiest, and I. It just fills my heart with just so much joy. That's wonderful. Thank you.
0: I just got a dog. Um, My dog, George Lopez. She's a girl. And uh, I never had my own dog before. And I I can't believe how much I love her. I can't believe how much I now understand dog people. And I really love watching TV at night. And I'm laying on the couch. And she lays behind me, like facing the other direction. And we sleep back to back. I love it.
1: I love when my dogs get excited that I'm going to take a nap. Like, well, like we're going to accomplish something.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: the three of us. Hi, I'm Lisa. And um, I love that feeling after you roller skate for a really long time, and it still feels like you're rolling. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. It's a good one.
0: Yeah. I love roller skating. Um, I was going to say I love when something happens in public. Like, uh, for example, like when there's one super obnoxious person at Starbucks and then they leave and everyone else has a group moment of hating that person after they leave. <laughs> right? And it's not like, I don't, because I don't think it's mal- as malicious as it is like when you look around knowing everyone else feels exactly the same way as you, like, fuck her! You know? So, uh, that's my favorite.
1: Thanks, Karen. Schmitty! Hey. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm from Los Angeles. Yay. uh I like seeing my friend Paul. I love seeing my friend Paul happy and in his elements doing this show. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. Why not?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I love Karen Kilgariff. I particularly love your Twitter feed. You're hysterical. And one tweet in particular you once tweeted. I never realize how much I hate comedy until ten minutes before I'm supposed to do a show. <laughs> Loved it. As a performer, I could not have favored it a hundred more times. Thanks, Schmitty. Thank else? you. We're, we're going to uh, end on that one because we, uh, we are out of time. But I want to thank you guys for, for coming out. Um, it means it means so much to me. And uh, stick around because Mike is doing uh, his live podcast, The 40-Year-Old Boy at 4 o'clock. And it's a great, great podcast. And I know he's got a lot of shit to talk about because Mike's going through some stuff. Um, but uh, another hand for for Karen for coming out and sharing. Thank you. Sharing his stuff with me. And I want to thank you guys for coming and supporting the show. And uh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Many, many thanks to uh, Karen Kilgariff for being such a, such a great guest and all the people that, uh, that showed up and supported it. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, Cerebral. I have uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist, Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, This last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. Uh, she helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that, uh, that I can do. And, uh, and I felt a sense of relief. All cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Um... Before I uh, take it out with some surveys and uh, a listener email, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can also support us non-financially by going to Amazon, um, to uh, iTunes, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show, and you can help spread the word through social media. Um, that also helps boost our uh, our visibility. And I want to take this time up because I've never... Well, it's been a while since I've thanked you guys, but um, the people that have signed up to – this is another way that you can support the show – people that have signed up to transcribe episodes. It takes about a full day for somebody to transcribe an entire episode of this show, and um, I just want to read the names of the people who have done that. Um, Jennifer Licano, uh Deborah Norby, um, Jennifer uh, again and again, Sarah Coletta Heald, Sean Bryan – Nicolayakis, Sean Bryan again, Sherry Sly, Wendy Chow, Wendy Chow again, Wendy Chow a third time, Sherry Sly, Amy Tennant, Lindsey Price, Keely Weir, Lindsay Price, Lindsay Price, Lindsay Price, Lindsey Price, Lindsey, New fucking Rock. Deborah Norby again, Jen Jebus, Emily Galashot, Lise Prebey, Emily Galashot, Emily Galashot, Emily Galashot. Emily Gallashote, Keely Weir again, and Jenna Gaines. Thank you, guys. Those are all the episodes that have been transcribed, and there are people currently transcribing other episodes, and I appreciate it so much, and I'm sorry if I butchered uh, any of your names. Um, Let's jump into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Fraud. So you know it's going to be teeming with self-confidence. He's straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts, pretty tame, just sex with a variety of different women. I'm married with three kids and would never act on that. Deepest, darkest secrets. I've been feeling down and depleted lately. And after a coworker just tore into me a few weeks ago, I had nothing inside of me to even attempt a defense. I was working out of town at the time and went back to the hotel and carved the word fraud into my left forearm. I used to cut myself a lot as a teenager and into my 20s, but hadn't done it in 15 years. Cutting myself again felt really good at the time, but I have come to really regret it. My seven-year-old daughter noticed it one day and asked me what it meant and how it got there. I ended up just dismissing it and changing the subject. My dental hygienist also noticed it when taking my blood pressure the other day. She's normally extremely chatty, but didn't say a word after she saw that carved into my arm. Since then, I've just kept the scar covered with a bandage so no one notices. It's extremely humiliating, but I also feel like I deserved it. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, just being able to please a woman. Um, I'm not able to please my wife and as a resort, we haven't had sex in almost two years. I've never been sexually intimate with anyone else. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? He, uh, he writes, "My wife knows. Uh, I feel a lot of shame about it." Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel like a failure as a husband and as a man. You know, I hope, I hope you listen to this episode and hear about how Karen talked about feeling like a fraud and know that we all feel that way um, at least the people that listen to this show I know feel that way maybe there's some people out there that never feel that way but um I feel that way a lot and you're not alone and I just want to give you a big hug this email came from uh a woman who calls herself Laura. And uh, she writes, I'm a crisis clinician who basically goes and assesses folks when they are suicidal, homicidal, or psychotic, as well as I do admissions and run groups in a voluntary short-term inpatient crisis stabilization unit. I will say I have totally ripped you off and done fear and love off groups in the crisis unit, and the patients have fucking loved it. Um, That makes me so happy to hear that. In my job, I deal with folks when they get pretty far beyond the state of okay, and I decide when and if they are no longer able to make safe decisions for themselves. Everyone should know that, at least in most states, uh, I'm in Tennessee, therapists like myself are out there who will meet you at the uh, ER if you are suicidal and help figure out what kind of care is best for you at that moment. Sometimes it's as drastic as an involuntary commitment to a psych hospital for a few days of evaluation and treatment. And sometimes it is just an outpatient appointment. Voluntary Crisis Stabilization Units, CSUs, are the in-between. There, patients get evaluated for meds for two to four days, do therapy groups, and have a safe place with peers who are going through similar situations. The level of care needed in that moment of assessment at an emergency room is my clinical judgment call, but I always work in the patient's best interest and in good faith. I encourage everyone to familiarize themselves with what crisis services are available in their state. Usually, this can be done through the state government website. Also, 211 is a fabulous resource, dialing 211 from a landline, uh, which I know you, you have mentioned on your podcast. A lot of times there are resources for counseling, meds, and especially crisis services for folks without insurance. This is something I've heard mentioned as a barrier on the podcast. I listened to the Ed Krasnick episode today, which is fucking amazing, by the way. Um, I do deal with mental illness myself, and I find your podcast so crucial in my daily life lately. I try to share what I can with patients in the CSU, as well as with my ridiculously well-adjusted husband, who does not always understand what I deal with. I just am so thrilled to have your episodes tucked in my iPhone. They never fail to either make me laugh, a real belly laugh, not a, not fake bullshit, or bring tears to my eyes, often both. I am tired of the squeaky clean clinical education about mental illness and how to treat it. I want the real shit. I want people to know that I know what it feels like, and I'm not just some therapist who will tell them some canned platitudes and cognitive reframes. Thank you. Never stop. Love and hugs, Laura. That really warmed my heart. Really, really warmed my heart. I wanted to share that with you guys because I figure you want to know stuff that warms my heart. So, taking it out with um, from the happy moments survey. This is from a woman who calls herself Ava and she's in her thirties and she writes after a traumatic event in my life i basically hold up and didn't go outside or interact with people very much for years during that time my health started to decline as well my doctor a hematologist decided to run a battery of tests for various blood diseases and cancer everything turned out mostly okay but they still monitor my blood on a regular basis nonetheless it really shook me up a few months after going through all those tests i went on a walk one day in my neighborhood There was a moment as I was walking that it hit me how how lucky I was to be alive. Simply breathing and being able to do something as simple as walking was truly a miracle. I cried most of that walk. I also marveled at everything around me. Since I hadn't been outside much in the previous years, everything looked so fresh, new, and vibrant. Almost as if I was seeing for the first time in my life. Every leaf, every flower, every blade of grass was simply astounding to me. I forgot how captivating clouds look shifting and moving above me in the sky. Birds had beautiful melodies to sing and a playfulness. I couldn't get enough of it. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. It was the first time I truly appreciated and felt the weight of what it means to be alive. What a beautiful moment to go out on. Thank you. Thank you for that, Ava. And um, thank you guys for listening and supporting. And coming out in Portland, and um, helping me create this this really cool community that that I love and really feeds really feeds my soul. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you're not alone. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.